Welcome into another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer. We're continuing our Top 10 Prospects podcast series today with the Toronto Blue Jays. We're going to talk about the rise of Ricky Tiedemann, Gilles Verzulueta's pretty impressive first full season healthy, as well as what to make of Arelvis Martinez and his struggles at AA last year. To do all that, I am joined by my friend and colleague Jeff Ponce. Jeff took over the Blue Jays for us this year in his first year doing the Prospect Handbook. Jeff, thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be on. This is my first uh, top 10 podcast of the offseason. So looking forward to it and one of my favorite systems to cover every day. It's a lot of first for you. You joined us at the end of last year, a little too late to take part in the prospect handbook writing process. So I have to ask, what was your experience like your first time writing a full prospect handbook chapter? You wrote multiple, but since this is your first one, we'll talk about that. And yeah. also just what uh, what did you make of this process coming in from the outside? Yeah, I think, you know, I really tried to build up uh, over the last part of the season. Um, I do have some local teams. I saw every team but Vancouver live within the Blue Jays organization. Um, So that was interesting. You know, certainly got a lot of looks. Vancouver kind of being on later at night. uh, There being a fair amount of decent broadcasts out there in the Northwest League. I was kind of able to come home, sit in front of the computer, cut video, you know, have the game on television. And I tried to take in as much as I possibly could just to see those players. It's the type of system where we'll say there's other systems where there's very clear cut tiers and names that folks know and sort of an expectation of where they're going to be ranked, where there's varying opinions really outside of like one or two uh, within this system. And I would say entering the season, probably even more so. So uh, it's one I paid keen interest to. It's probably also this and the Cardinals. Uh, the two teams I have that have the biggest fan bases, we'll say, because they do represent, in some ways, all of Canada. Oh, they absolutely do. I remember for me, one of the big moments that really hit home for me was when you saw whenever the Blue Jays came to play the Mariners and just how I still call it Safeco Fields, T-Mobile Park now, but would fill up with Blue Jays fans. A lot of people coming down from Vancouver and you realize, you know, the Blue Jays are Canada's team. The Expos have been gone for well over a decade now. Um, you know, this is a situation where, yeah, you know, the Blue Jays, yes, they play in Toronto, but they are Canada's team and, you know, coast to coast, there's, there's a pretty big fan base. And that's partially why also Vancouver is consistently one of the best drawing minor league teams around. And the fact that they were able to play in their home park last year for the first time in two years, three years, really 2019 was the last time they were able to do it was, was certainly really cool to see Jeff, before we dive into the nitty gritty of the system, um, I feel like we do have to talk about the Blue Jays very quietly have been an organization that gets the most from their prospects. We talk about this a lot. Some organizations have guys who look really promising, but they really struggle to develop them. And maybe they don't blossom until they go to another team. But you look at the Blue Jays, they won 92 games last year, made the postseason for the second time in three years, were competitive. You know, things were a little dicey early and that led them to fire manager Charlie Montoyo. But once John Schneider took over, uh, they really took off and performed to the level people thought they would. But you go down this roster, there's a lot of homegrown, not just talents, but homegrown all-stars. Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Bo Bichette, Alec Manoa, Alejandro Kirk made an all-star game. Jordan Romano very quietly has become one of the better closers in the American League. There's a really good homegrown core here that they've developed successfully. And then there's a lot of other guys that have gone out and, and been able to use good prospects to go get in trades. You look at you know the trade for Matt Chapman. You look at the trade for Jose Barrios. Um, and then on top of all that, 
They've also done a good job of finding players in trades who maybe haven't established themselves. They got Teoscar Hernandez for Francisco Liriano. Hernandez came up in their system. He's now with the Mariners, but he was really good for them for a while. Even Santiago Espinal, they acquired him for Steve Pierce. He was, you know, a mid-level prospect at best. Look up last year, he's in the All-Star game. So this is a team that has done a really good job, kind of in all avenues, but in player development especially, um, again, there's been a lot of positive outcomes what do you attribute it to and, and what do you kind of see from the system just top to bottom and how they're developing players and what they're doing so well? Yeah. And I think outside of like those Vlad bow years or those kind of guys kind of led the system, we've seen the consistent theme of a lot of blue Jays prospects kind of being a little bit underrated for whatever reason. They just don't seem to maybe have the most exciting profiles. What they do really well is sort of identifying a type, which I think the best player development and, you know, um, minor league systems typically do. Um, they have a style of player that they really like. It seems to be on the hitting side, guys who make a lot of contact and control the zone. And then it's sort of a gamble on, you know, does the power develop? How do the, you know, supporting skills develop? Is this guy going to be capable of playing multiple spots in the infield, multiple spots in the outfield? I think even some of the guys that they've drafted recently, if they trade away a guy like Austin Martin, kind of fits into that profile and they optimized his bat value really they kind of traded him at the height of, uh, of the market for martin when we look back on it um, definitely <laughs> and, and i think with pitching prospects they've done a really good job whether it's in the draft whether it's internationally whether it's through trades identifying sort of young promising pitchers that have a combination of stuff as well as some starter traits in terms of command of their fastball, being able to control the zone, being able to throw three pitches pretty consistently. Um, so they're not the most exciting guys when they acquire them, but they seem to have pretty consistent breakouts. And if we look back on the last couple of years, you know, they've had a lot of those guys. Um, and, and that was one of the things that I can remember, you know, talking to sources within the organization, they would say, you're higher on this system than other folks are. And it's like, well, every time we come back to the table and talk, you have another pitcher that broke out. You know, and, and it could be somebody like Tiedemann. It could have been like something like Alejandro Moline, who's not in the top the top 10, but a guy that sort of projects to be a, a player that could potentially be, you know, a seventh, eighth inning kind of a, of a guy, maybe a swing starter um, if the three pitches develop. They seem to have a lot of guys that could fit major league roles, even if they're not the most exciting. And then they have some top tier talent. So when you, you know, bake that in with, We'll say what what depth is, even if it's not the most exciting depth, but we'll say uh, more realistic and probable sort of outcome depth. I don't think there's anything wrong with that because it allows you to backfill and some of those fringe guys end up turning into better players than you anticipate. Danny Jensen kind of being one, Alejandro Kirk, as you mentioned before, uh, being another. Even Alec Manoa, I don't think with his draft capital, uh, as well as he performed in the Cape, as well as he performed in West Virginia prior to his draft year, I think there were still some question marks around him and question marks around where he went in that draft. I mean, at this point, this guy is much better than I would say your typical mid rotation starter. Um, oh yeah. Might even oh, be yeah. a front end guy. If he takes that step forward, he's young and he's been really, really productive on a playoff team. So I think, you know, kudos to them. And they've went out and acquired major league caliber starting pitchers with some control that they could sign to longer term contracts. 
Yeah, no, Alec Manoa is one of the most promising young starters in the American League, really Major League Baseball. And I, I do think it's important to give the Blue Jays credit here. You know, they went into a rebuild. They made back-to-back -back ALCSs 2015-16 and did some unpopular things. You know, Jose Bautista, Edwin Encarnacion, Marcus Stroman, guys who were core members of that team. Um, they left. They, they let them get away. They traded them just depending on what the move was. And they went into a rebuild. And as we've talked about, for every rebuild that works, there's one that doesn't. You only have to look at the Tigers and Royals, two teams that went into five-year rebuilds. You look up after five years, they're still in last place, and they just fired their GMs. I mean, the rebuilds failed. And it's not easy to pull one off. People talk about the Astros and Cubs' successes. They don't talk about all the failed rebuilds. Give the Blue Jays credit. I mean, this was definitely risky for you know them to undertake, but they, by all appearances, have pulled it off. And they're in a good place to continue competing in the AL East when you look at this roster, their willingness to spend money um, on big-name players, complimentary pieces, whatever they need to do, sign guys to extensions. They've done it all, so they're in a really good place. All right, Jeff, diving into the system, Ricky Tiedemann is now the number one prospect in this system after they traded Gabriel Moreno to the D-backs for Dalton Varsho. You know, it's funny. I got to write up Tiedemann in the 2020 draft when he was at Lakewood High School, and he was one of the fastest risers in that draft, even in the shortened season, getting to barely play. Um, he stuck to his number. He wasn't getting drafted in the shortened five-round draft that year because he had his number and teams were very budget conscious, but everyone liked him. Was supposed to go to San Diego State, rerouted to junior college to be eligible for the 2021 draft. You know, I saw him that fall and you saw the ability, um, the velocity hadn't come yet, but you still saw, again, just this really projectable build, big, strong, durable guy, you know, low slot, was funky, great change up. And it wasn't hard to project this, you know, 90, 92, one day becoming 95, 97, um, has an okay year, gets drafted in the third round. And then almost immediately, you know, everyone expected that 90, 92 to become 95, 97, but they thought it would take a few years. It happened almost right after he signed, went out this year and established himself very quickly as one of the most promising pitching prospects in the game. What did you see from Ricky Tiedemann this year? What did he show and what does he project to be moving forward? Yeah, he's really exciting. Um, I think it all starts and sort of um, rolls off of the quality of his pitch mix. Once he was able to add that level of velocity to the style of fastball he has, it's very unique. Some of it sort of plays up because of his low left-handed slot and sort of, yep. you know, how he kind of wraps around the back and comes through. Um, great slider. The quality of that pitch throughout the season continued to improve. He continued to get more and more results with the pitch. He continued to sort of be able to command it better than he ever had before. That's one of the best sliders in minor league baseball. His changeup has always kind of been his calling card as a secondary pitch, which is great. Obviously, as a left-hander, you want to be able to have that pitch first and foremost out front. It's a great pitch. The quality is still there. He consistently lands it. So he has a really tight, established pitch mix that there's really no reason for him to add sort of a fourth pitch. We don't need that. He's got, you know, three pitches that move in different directions, and he's able to spot all of them. And the deception plays up because of the arm action, because of how low he comes around. And then we take a look at just the player, the, the physicality. This guy is built like, you know, uh, a mid-major center in college basketball that can run the floor a little bit. Um, you know, he's a big 6'4", 6'5", guy, very broad-shouldered, but it's muscular. Um, I don't have any questions about him, you know, maintaining that build sort of backing up in terms of athleticism or anything like that. He's a pretty big athletic guy, moves pretty well considering his size and just the size of his structure. 
Um, but it's it's a muscular sort of workhorse build that, you know, you can see this guy building up to a lot of innings. And he was so efficient early in the year that they actually promoted him to double A, shut him down for a month just because they wanted him to be able to catch up with the innings limit that they had set for him, which is about 75 to 80 innings, and then rolled him back out in double A at the beginning of August. And they were more truncated, shorter starts. So, you know, I think they were careful with how they, they handled him. I think he really exceeded expectations just in terms of how quickly he got to those innings. Um, and they, you know, just be, if you look at the numbers, you look at how hard it was for opposing batters to make contact, um, how infrequently he really allows walks or allows that to sort of roll or, or spiral on him. He was just really efficient. I saw a start early in the year. I saw a start later in the year in double A actually head to head with Kyle Harrison. Too bad. It was really good contrast, two great left-handers there. Um, and just his ability to wear out sort of the outside part of the plate and backdoor sliders, land his changeup on the outer half, even his fastball that just because of how much run it has sort of that slot, it looks a lot like a slider when he releases it. It's just a heck of a lot faster and then sort of downshifts and, you know, is able to catch that corner. What that does is when you see that over the first couple of innings, it sort of forces batters to respect it and have to swing on a little bit more, which in turn led to a lot more chases. And I just think his command of his secondaries and the unique shape of his fastball plus velocity, um, it just makes him a sort of a different type of pitcher than we've seen out there in the last couple of years. It's a really unique look. Yeah, and that was what always stood out, seeing him as an amateur. Again, you talk about the physicality. He was going to grow into that body. The low slot was always a really, really, you know, something that helped him out. And I think what's really impressive is you talked about, you know, how he has the three-pitch mix and the command. And that was sort of the thing with him coming out of JUCO. Again, you saw the fastball projection, the great changeup. The slider was always more of like an average-ish pitch. You project it to be average. And the command could wander a little bit because his arm slot would wander. And so it was one of those things where you saw the raw ingredients, but there's still some rawness to it. I think it's important to know he was not overly dominant at the junior college level in 2021. There's still a lot of projection here. And for him, I mean, just to put this in perspective, his ERA in JUCO was a full run and a half higher than it was in his first full year of pro ball. Um, his ERA was up, uh, I believe it's 383. And here in his first full year of pro ball, he got up to double A, went five and four with a 217 ERA. And here's the stat that's craziest to me 78.2 innings. He allowed 39 hits, 39 hits in 78 and two thirds innings, getting up to double A. You talked about not a lot of walks either, only gave up three home runs. I mean, he did not get barreled up. And again, just the progression of the slider, the progression of the command and the fastball velocity jump, it really jumps out how much this guy is improving rapidly. It's not like he's just getting better at one thing. Three things simultaneously jumped really in one year. It's pretty remarkable. Yeah, it's one of the best pitch mix mixes in the top 100. You know, that would be included in my best pitch mixes in the top 100 article uh, up on the site at Baseball America. So, yeah, I mean, it's just you watch it. The expectations for me were fairly low early in the season. Like, it's like, all right, this was an interesting Juco guy. We've known that he was a top 100 player in the draft for two consecutive seasons. But it wasn't like, you know, top 20, top 15. It wasn't like going to see Andrew Painter or going to see Jackson Job, uh, who both pitched while I was down there. So, you know, I didn't know what to anticipate. And then he comes out, he's throwing like this. You see the body, the physicality. It's one of those times where, kind of like Andrew Painter, if, you knew nothing about this player. You would just plop down in Dunedin. 
and you told someone, oh, yeah, that's a 28 year old rehabbing major leaguer, you would have believed it just because of the command and the quality of those three pitches. It's just so rare with a player this young because you really think about it. This is a guy who would be going into his draft year now had he, you know, honored his commitment to San Diego State, et cetera. Yeah, certainly a really, really impressive player. And again, someone that a lot of people like. I think if you polled executives and scouts, even his biggest proponents and said, yeah, this guy might be the best left-handed pitching prospect in all of baseball after his first year. Again, there's an expectation of, okay, I can see him getting there, but it might take three years. The fact that it's all jumped forward so quickly is what's so impressive and speaks to him and his aptitude and also the Blue Jays and their player development system. We've talked about it. They've done a really good job getting the most from guys. That leads me into the number two prospect in the system now, Yosfer Zulueta, uh, was an international signee and had a really rotten string of luck uh, almost immediately after he signed, had Tommy John surgery. Then there was the pandemic season, and then his first game back, his first batter he was facing, he tore his ACL covering first base on a ground ball. So he didn't get to pitch almost at all. His first three seasons in this organization finally got on the mound 2022 and shot up from low A to triple A, um, showed some really electric stuff. He's now number two prospect in this system post the Gabriel Moreno trade. What did Yosfer Zulueta show this first year that has so many people high on him? And, and how does he project moving forward, especially given there's just not much track record here? Yeah. And I think, you know, you look at the age, you look at the levels at which he had his best production. I think if you didn't know anything about the guy's backstory, you, you probably would be pumping the brakes a little bit. Um, and there is some conflicting opinion when I talk to scouts uh, and evaluators you know, from opposing organizations that have Blue Jays coverage. Some are really, really high in Zulueta and view him as a guy that has sort of number two starter upside just because of the quality of the stuff and his command of four pitches. I mean, he does legitimately have four average or better pitches. I think there's maybe some ceiling for it to be four above average or better pitches. He shows good command of his changeup. Uh, he shows good command of his curveball. It misses a lot of bats, and it's a shape that's a little bit deeper in terms of two-plane movement. It plays off of a sweepier slider with a little ride that's really hard. It's, you know, upper to mid-80s. He'll get that pitch up to, like, 89 with significant sweep. When you have a combination like that and you can get it in or around the zone, it really challenges hitters. It's a difficult pitch that even if you do time it well to actually barrel and make strong contact against um, and then he's mixing in his fastball, which is probably what gets the most headlines because he was up to 102 this year in game. Um, he will hit 100 miles per hour consistently in appearances. The fastball sits more like 97, 98, 99. It's not a heavy riding fastball, um, which you know typically right, right now is sort of what's in vogue, what we would call a plus fastball. The shape isn't necessarily great, but it gets like kind of Tiedemann, gets a heavy amount of arm side run that's beyond what is typically an above average amount of arm side run on a four seam fastball who mix in a two seam variation uh, that will allow him to get ground balls. He has a good mix of sort of controlling contact, keeping most of his contact on the ground um, and swing and miss stuff. It's just a matter of him consistently sort of honing in the command, consistently throwing strikes with all of his pitches. Um, the strike rates were, fringy to average throughout the season um they're not really poor he's not one of these guys that really just lost all control i think he wore down a little bit later it's one of the reasons that they moved him to the bullpen after they had been starting him early in the season but you also have to think this guy really hadn't had 
much track record or much innings built up over three years. He had a defect out of Cuba. He had the Tommy John surgery and the, you know, which was timed well with the pandemic, frankly, and then has the freak accident in 2021 covering first base in his first batter blows out his, you know, his ACL. So, you know, there's, there's just some interesting parts of this guy's profile and background where there might be another gear. There are evaluators that think there is another gear in here and that we could see this guy start and, you know, add 120 innings into his resume and potentially be up in the, in the major leagues by the end of the year. So it's kind of interesting. He certainly has the stuff to be, uh, a pretty good reliever right out the gate. Like he could break camp with the team. Um, but I think, you know, being able to develop that starting pitcher, whether that's as, you know, an option and some depth in the major league level or somebody that mid season, when you're looking to make a bigger acquisition that you can trade away because he's built up some value. Um, I think Zululeta maybe fits into that, that mold. And we were aggressive ranking him too, but I think, you know, the feedback consistently came in in terms of what his upside was versus the rest of the rest of the guys here in this uh, Blue Jays top 10. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned again, there's really, really explosive stuff there. He shows you the ability to command some of this stuff, but it was a walk rate over five when you look over the course of the season. It did spike as he got to higher levels and started facing better hitters with better plate discipline. And as you mentioned, he moved to the bullpen once he got to double A. So those are some of the factors you talk about. A lot of people are high on him. There's also a lot of reasons people think he's a reliever, potentially a good one, but a pure reliever. And, and those are the reasons why. If you had to handicap it right now, what is the general split between start relief with Zulueta? Is it 50-50, 60-40? How do you handicap it? It's probably, I would say, 60-40 leading reliever uh, in terms of when you talk to folks. Um, but the folks that believe in him as a starter, the upside, I think, is much higher. And with Brandon Barriera, with like really no track record as a professional whatsoever um it was sort of hard to push him above that when you know there could be potential value in 2023 to the blue jays absolutely all right jeff well we've talked about the top two arms in the system two really really good pitchers uh tiedemann's in our top 100 zulueta there's been conversations about him in the top 100 i want to dive into the rest of the system with you first we're going to take a quick break we're driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about using Indeed is how it does a lot of that organizational work for me. I can sort through candidates. I can respond to them. I can schedule interviews all through Indeed. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses, including Baseball America, that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to another Baseball America Team Top 10 Prospects podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer here breaking down the Toronto Blue Jays farm system with Jeff Ponce. All right, Jeff, before the break, we talked about the Blue Jays and all their successes in player development. We talked about the top two arms in the system, Ricky Tiedemann, Josefer Zulueta. Uh, you kind of hit on Brandon Barrera, their first round pick this year. I want to dive into some of the position players. Um, Arelvis Martinez is someone who was very, very highly regarded when he signed uh, on the international free agent market. Got off to a, a pretty solid start to his professional career. And in spring training last year, he really impressed a lot of folks, made a big impression, led to a lot of people thinking he was really due for a breakout year at the upper levels. Instead, went to double A and, and really, really struggled to make contact, really, really struggled to get on base, showed power. Um, but there were uh, it's fair to say there were more concerns than, than maybe things to get excited about. On the flip side, he was very young for the level. In a lot of ways, he's one of the more difficult evaluations. Um, you saw a lot of Relvis Martinez. What were some of the things you saw? What were some of the things that evaluators were seeing? And where does he kind of stand now? Yeah, I saw a lot of him in New Hampshire this year. I think if you just isolate everything else and just look at the swing, look at the kind of contact, how the ball jumps off of his bat, it's easy to fall in love with Orelvis. Um, you see him on the right day. He'll rope a couple of doubles. He rarely lets anything get by. He is aggressive on pitches in the zone. Then you could see the bad part of it. He's often too aggressive. And it wasn't just his bats and ball skills, funny enough, are probably average. It's it's not a matter of like not being able to consistently hit the baseball when he swings. It's a matter of he just swings at everything. He's never met a pitch that he didn't think he could drive 450 <laughs> feet. That's sort of the way he plays the game. There's bat speed. There's explosiveness. His body, in my opinion, um, it's not great, but it's much better than I thought it was going to be. This isn't sort of a bad body slugger that's going to end up at a corner outfield spot. I mean, a corner outfield, corner infield spot. Um, he moves better in the field. I think, you know, sometimes instincts and some of the decision-making at shortstop isn't good. The arm is pretty good. If he does slide over to third or even second base, I think he's going to have the range to be able to handle it. Um, he's at least an average, if not a better than that athlete. And the power is huge. I mean, he set a New Hampshire home run record with 30 home runs this year. That was his career high in terms of home runs. And as I said, you see him on the right day, you will see him rope a double, you know, hit a, hit a monster home run, um, jumps all over fastballs. He shows the ability to hit breaking balls at times, but too often he swings at the wrong pitches that are outside the zone. The approach is really what's holding back or Elvis more than anything else. It's just, and I don't know if it's a pitch recognition thing. I don't know if it's just an approach thing that he's just so hyper aggressive and just believes in his bat to ball ability so much, but he needs to swing about a third of the time that he does now and sort of be able to pick his spots when he does get something over the plate. Someone tries to sneak something by him on the inner half and he can, he can turn pull side, the power, the swing, the stuff is there. And let, as you said, it's a tough evaluation because you know, you see the quality of what's there. 
Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, it's huge power. When he barrels a ball up, it goes a long way. You mentioned 30 home runs last year as a 20-year-old in double-A at New Hampshire. Um, really has the ability to do damage. And even the year before in 2021, again, hit 28 homers, 87 RBIs. I mean, you see the ability to be a big-time run producer. But as you mentioned, very, very, very aggressive. And we saw that last year. I mean, he hit for power in Dunedin, which doesn't happen in the Florida State League. But as soon as he got to Vancouver, even just high A, where guys have you know the ability to expand the zone a little more, have a little more control, understand where they're trying to put the baseball, they were able to exploit his aggressiveness. Uh, he got moved up to double A despite only 27 games at high A. And part of that was how good he looked in spring training. You mentioned that power. He also hit 203 with a 286 on base percentage. And Again, I think you can look at it a couple ways, which is, look, he only had 27 games in high A. He was 20 years old in double A, moved probably too aggressively, and you kind of you know put it on that. But at the same time, it's rough enough. I mean, he he has to repeat the level. Um, there's He will not make enough contact going to triple A next year based on what he showed. He's going to get you know eaten alive, just to be frank. Um, how realistic is it that he can, you know, do what you say he needs to do, which is swing about a third of the time. It, it's very, very difficult to, you know, make that big of an improvement with, you know, your approach and your pitch recognition. You can improve it, but that's a pretty substantial improvement. Yeah. I think the thing with, with or Elvis is any sort of improvement, even if it's incremental over a lot of years could get him to that point. I mean, this can be a guy that strikes out 27, 28% of the time, He's walking eight or 9% of the time and is swinging more often on the right pitches. He's not going to fall into what I typically call like the Mikel Franco disease, where you know, he <laughs> believes in his ability so much that he's just swinging at everything. It didn't catch up to Franco until he got to the major leagues. But, you know, I think getting that gut check in double A as a 20 year old, and there's some stuff that you can sort of, okay, like, you know, he probably should have started the season in high A, whatever. Um, I think you still don't want to write it off because the power is so special. And if he just gets to like an fringy average level with the approach, I think it's going to pay dividends long-term. I mean, it happened for the guy ranked ahead of Madison Barger, frankly, that's kind of what the difference was in the season. He still doesn't have a great approach. He's still not an elite bat to ball guy, but he's got power and he got his approach and his swing decisions into a place where, you know, he was able to stabilize a little bit and get to his best power. I just think that's what Orelvis needs. Yeah, again, there's no question there's a lot of, of potential there, and it'll be interesting to see what adjustments he makes moving into the 2023 season. I actually think that's going to be one of the more interesting subplots of the Blue Jays' minor league season. Mm -hmm. Jeff, in our intro, you talked about the Blue Jays having a track record of taking guys who – you know, were considered maybe good, but not great and turning them into, you know, really, really good players. A lot of guys being underrated. I mean, even, you know, Bo Bichette was a second rounder people liked, but he exceeded expectations. You talked about Alec Manoa, how he was a divisive guy. Now he's one of the best young starters in the American league. And someone that is on this list that again, was by no means considered a top guy, but throughout last year, his name kept coming up more and more as, Hey, this guy's real. There's something here. This is someone to pay attention to was Hayden Younger. Um, he's now ahead of Nate Pearson on the pecking order of Blue Jays pick, pitching prospects. What can you tell us about Hayden Younger, his background, and, and what led him to have such a big rise last season? Yeah, um, I mean, this guy made it up to AAA, started the season out of camp in AA. That was the first time where, you know, my ears perked up and I really paid attention to what's going on, you know, talking to scouts with, with organizational coverage when I was in Dunedin. It was like, hey, check out this Hayden Younger guy. You know, there has been... Uh, significant improvement just across the board was good in college 
sixth rounder, this might be a guy that had they redrafted now, you know, we might be talking about the top two to three rounds. And what it really like revolved around was the quality of Younger's fastball. Um, it's a low release height. It's actually very similar. It's not the same guy in shape to Jacob Degrom. It's very low release. He gets a good. To be clear, we're not comparing Hayden Younger. No, we're not. <laughs> I, I feel like we need to clarify that. But but you're, yes, understanding what you're no, talking about. It's just the same little. style, sort of a fastball. How <laughs> it moves, what makes it unique, and what makes it special. So he has this sort of characteristic. Part of it is Younger is a smaller guy; it's six feet tall. So there's questions as to whether he's going to be a reliever or a starter. Um, you know, there's there's pretty good secondary stuff. I would say you know everything is sort of average across the board with the slider and the changeup commands things really well it's a really quality fastball the only issue is the best velocity that 93 to 97 he'll come out in the first couple innings kind of very quickly drops down and part of that is he doesn't have a lot of innings on his arm he was a college reliever um going a few times through the order is just something that hasn't been common for him so there's some questions but there's once again like this this glimmer of hope or upside just like we have at Zuluata. I mean, a sixth rounder out of a mid-major Missouri State. And to be clear, Missouri State's a very good mid-major, but a mid-major nonetheless. And for his first full season, he gets up to AAA. Again, that's just a really, really promising development path, development arc. And and like you said, there's things to work on, having been a reliever, building innings. He got to 88 and two-thirds last year. You know, he was able to, you know, prevent guys from really, you know, getting the barrel on the ball that often only 63 hits allowed in that time the walks were a little high it is notable he did give up some home runs so guys don't barrel him up very often but when they did the ball did travel a little bit again we talked about with Zulueta kind of that split starter reliever how do people see Younger's outcome and, and what does that split look like for him potentially yeah I think one of the reasons he's lower on the list is a majority see him as a reliever um, some see that you know maybe he could be a five six seven out uh, type of guy that could go multiple innings others see him as more you put this guy in the eighth inning the fastball quality is going to play um you know he can really get that 93 to 97 you see that higher end velocity which is where he gets better results if you look over his first innings and first two innings and starts and appearances that's typically where he's not in trouble where he comes out and he's immediately attacking with the fastball has his best shape has his best command has his best best velocity. So I think he projects as a reliever long-term, but he could be a pretty good one. We do need to talk about Nate Pearson. At one point, the number one prospect in this system has just been sidelined by injuries again and again and again and again. Uh, he was expected to contribute to the team this year in 2022. Finally, instead missed most of the year at the last strain and, and finished the year at AAA Buffalo in the bullpen. Where is he right now? Um, he, he's still in the top 10 on this list. What's the outlook for him right now? Just kind of where is he developmentally? Yeah, and he's kind of like a, a a bit of a scary sort of uh, foreshadowing tale, I think, for maybe Zulueta and Junger. Uh, when you look, I mean, Pearson was similar. They, they sort of played around with him as a starter. I can remember when he first came up to New Hampshire, he'd do a two-inning appearance. He'd then be off. He'd do a five to six inning appearance. He'd do a two inning appearance. And they sort of took the reins off. He gets up to the major leagues, if I remember correctly, in 2020, makes his debut. Um, Looked pretty good. And then it's like things just started to fall out of sync, which is what consistently has happened with Pearson. You know, it's a big physical frame. He's six foot six, 250, 260 pounds. And the sort of build that he has, 
he's like an offensive lineman sort of a build, right? Where there's a lot of maintenance that goes into keeping that body, you know, in shape and being able to repeat his mechanics and not get hurt. Pitching isn't natural. Um, so in general, it's, it's just an area that you're going to get more hurt more frequently when you have a big body like this, a lot of guys typically wear down. I think that's what the issue has been. As far as I know, it looks like Pearson at this point is only going to be used as a reliever. Uh, they view him as somebody that has the quality of stuff, which I agree with, you know, the fastball, we know how hard it is, even though it was down a little bit this year, still upper nineties, uh, the quality of the slider, he can, you know, certainly throw a different shape in the curveball. He's had a change up at times, but I think when you shorten that to just the fastball and the slider, you show the curveball to the left-handers, you have him go an inning, you have him throw as hard as he can. And there's a lot of power there. There's nothing wrong with that. They got plenty of starters at the major league level. This is a guy that can sort of give them another powerful late inning option, which is something these teams are always looking for. There's a few guys here that could potentially contribute in the bullpen. I think Nate Pearson's the first one up. He's on the 40 man roster. He's had major league experience and they had him at the, in the relief role rate late in the year. They just, there's only so many innings you can put in this arm. So I think the 50, 60 inning reliever is probably his best role. Yeah, it's funny. I remember seeing him in the fall league, and that was that when he threw that 104 mile an hour fastball that Pete Alonso turned around, and people were getting really excited. And I watched him, and you saw the arm strength. But you're right, the build, the delivery, the the what the operations. It was very, very much. You know, this is a pure reliever. This is a guy just put in the eighth inning and let him try and overwhelm some guys with this fastball and slider. And we've seen that kind of come to fruition. And I did talk to some evaluators. Uh, my piece that's up right now at BaseballAmerica.com, where I looked at former top 100 prospects who have graduated, what their outlook is. Um, Nate Pearson didn't make it into that article because he hasn't graduated. But I did have some conversations with evaluators who saw him kind of in the context of this uh, last year. And what they were saying is based on what they saw last year, look, it's 100% reliever. You know, starting is no longer an option. Um, he's mm -hmm. fully committed to that. The way everything works is his aggressiveness, his tempo on the mound. It's become full reliever even more than it was beforehand. And I asked him, okay, you know, what kind of role are we talking about here? You know, are we talking closer? And the answer was no, the command still is just not there for that. We've seen that in the major leagues, walks have been an issue. More seventh, eighth inning. But again, a lot of games are lost in the seventh, eighth inning. Having that really, really dominant setup man, that really, really dominant bridge guy, that's important. I think sometimes in the prospect world, you hear, oh, you know, he's just a reliever. But in the major leagues, when you actually watch games, and it's important to do that, Again, people don't appreciate relievers until their team doesn't have any. Yeah. Right. When their team is just blowing games left and right in the sixth, seventh, eighth. Yeah. That then you really, really, really appreciate. Oh, yeah. Having a lockdown guy who, you know, you can shorten games and it's potentially over in the seventh. That's really, really important and a really nice weapon to have. And I think that's the role. If he can stay healthy, Nate Pearson will fill, you know, come in seventh, eighth, throw 100 with a dirty slider, get three quick outs and move on to the ninth. I agree. Yeah, I think it's his perfect role. All right, Jeff, I do want to ask about the construction of this list. I, we've talked about the Blue Jays, again, having a lot of guys who, you know, people like or think are okay and then maybe exceeding those expectations. What? How do you assess the depth of the system? Because, again, I think from the outside looking in to the naked eye, it's, it's not a very deep system. But, again, the Blue Jays have fairly consistently come up with some guys in retrospect like, oh, actually, yeah, it was a deep system, even if we didn't realize it at the time. How do you assess the depth? And, and with that, how many guys would you say were kind of in the mix to be in the top 10 here? Yeah, there were a few sort of at the back end of the top 10 that didn't make it that I think certainly have a case. Um, 
one of them being uh, Josh Kasevich, who was at 12. Actually, Adam Mako was 11 initially. And then the Gabriel Moreno trade happened. So he moved up one spot. Um, that trade happened, I think, after I had already made the top 10. So that was sort of just fitting him in. The grades were correct. It sort of made sense. Kasevich, more of like a defensive shortstop. He's got great bat-to-ball skills, great approach, like all these Blue Jays guys do. It's just a question of how much power is there. Uh, the one really interesting arm, and I could see him sort of bursting into the top 10 pretty early on in the season, is uh, Dehyan Santos, who is a right-hander with an absolutely killer slider. Um, put a 60 on it. I think there's probably some conversation. You could have put a 70 on it just in terms of pitch quality. Um, he throws it almost as, as frequently as he throws his fastball. Still a very projectable right-hander lower slot. Uh, so there's a lot of risk here. There's a lot of command issues uh, and control issues, but he's got quality stuff across the board, three quality pitches, um, sort of like a right-handed Ricky Tiedemann with less command. Uh, but a really interesting player. He signed out of Venezuela back in 2019, so a young guy as well. Absolutely. All right, Jeff, any final thoughts here before we wrap up just about this farm system, Blue Jays organization of franchise as a whole and what lies ahead? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you got to be pretty excited if you're a Blue Jays fan. There were low expectations coming into the year about the system. You know, we left with some breakouts, obviously, Ricky Tiedemann, Zulueta, um, you know, even a guy that didn't make the top 10, like Gabriel Martinez had a really good year. I think people were high on the bat there. Um, and then just the depth, like there's still some players outside of this list, a guy like Spencer Horowitz, a guy like uh, Hagen Danner, who are on the 40 man roster and, you know, could potentially fill some roles and some needs uh, as they arise. And there's some injuries throughout the season. So I think they maybe don't have the most exciting depth. As I said, I do think they have uh, a lot of role player depth that, you know, could be valuable for where they're at right now in the organization and um, you know, their goals of, winning a world series frankly you need sort of those guys to backfill that you don't have to give up assets for who are already on your 40-man roster um you know being able to call those guys up in a pinch is really helpful and the blue jays have had guys like that over the last couple of years auto lopez being another one you, you mentioned espinal yeah and again i think it's really really important i think what just jumps out to me big picture is again it's important to give credit to teams who pull off successful rebuilds and the Blue Jays did it. I talked about it. You have Jose Bautista, Edwin Encarnacion, Josh Donaldson, who I neglected to mention the first time around, even though he was the MVP award winner. My bad. Um, you know, Marcus Stroman and, and all those guys leave or get traded. And it's not easy to replace that. It's not easy to get back mm -hmm. to contention after that. Even Troy Tulowitzki. I mean, they had a lot of stars that that left and they they bottomed out a little bit. They went 67 to 95 that one year. And there's no guarantee you'll come back up. I think you just have to give credit to the organization, scouting, player development, everyone involved for getting them back to being this competitive. And it's not easy in the AL East. We saw that this Blue Jays franchise had a lot of good teams that could never quite get to the postseason with the Yankees and Red Sox in the division for really the better part of you know 20 plus years between uh, their title in 93 until they made the playoffs again in 2015. So um, it's not easy, but they pulled it off, and, and I think it bodes really, really well for both the present and future of the franchise. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me. Appreciate your time and insight as always. Hey, man. It's been a blast. Go Blue Jays. <laughs> All right, everyone. That'll do it for another Baseball America podcast. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. For Jeff Ponce, I'm Kyle Glazer. Thanks for listening. Have a good one, everybody.